community like Hoxteth is ultra suspicious, rightly so, of do-gooders, as they might put it, or professionals coming in and sort of like parachuted in, sort of saying, oh, we'll help solve your problems. The tension there is the way I'm speaking, is the way I'm acting, really at the service of this, this group or these people, this individual, or am I fulfilling my own need to be wanted or whatever? A Native American activist called Russell Means, he says that European revolutionary ideologies, capitalism, Marxism, Christianity, he mentions those three, are revolutionary in their own minds, but if you're not European, it just amounts to the same thing. It's just continuation of, uh, of what was. And the only way to judge a European revolutionary ideology is by looking at its effects on non-European peoples. Um, that's a very big scale statement mm -hmm. of, the, of the problem, of the issue, of the question. You're listening to Common Era, a podcast about spirituality in an age of change. For our first season, we're hosting a conversation between author and musician David Benjamin Blower and Nicholas Postlethwaite, a Catholic priest from The Passionists. Pope Francis would be one of the influential Catholic voices in recent years, reiterating the need to step outside our known world and reframe it through the eyes of those on the margins of society. It's an idea that lies at the heart of the Passionist movement. Of course, in this episode, David and Nicholas are sharing their own lived experience, but they talk about their attempts to adopt a new narrative where they themselves are not at the center. They talk about the places they've lived, how those places have changed them, as well as discussing the politics involved in self-awareness, privilege, and ideology. So a friend of mine told me a story. She was reading a book in a cafe and then an elderly person sidled up to her and looked over her shoulder and said, have you noticed that the margins on books are getting smaller? And then the person just enigmatically kind of wandered off into the, into the shadows and disappeared. <laughs> and that metaphor kind of became an important one to her, the, the sense in which the space around the edges of the body of text that has its thing to say used to be much bigger. People used to make notes in it and put their own thoughts around it in some sort of Talmudic fashion. And, and over time, the margins get smaller and smaller. The main message becomes the thing that dominates and there isn't space for much else. I see a paradox these days in that there's cultural and political sort of reactionary energies that sort of seem to be almost wholly motivated by the anxiety that the, the margins are getting bigger and the margins are spilling over our borders and the margins are draining our welfare systems and this anxiety that the margins are out to get us and they're going to kind of sink the boat. The character of the tension between the margins and the main story at the moment feels like it's in, in some kind of humming point, some kind of crisis. I wanted to ask a bit about your many years of working in different marginal environments and I mean the thing I'm interested in is where have you been and how have you been changed by where you've been? Mm -hmm. A thought comes to my mind about um, I, I, I was studying for a couple of years 
in Paris in the late 1960s. And for anybody who knows a bit of the history of Paris in the late 1960s, it was, it was a time of um, a lot of student unrest. It was a time when the Vietnam War was sort of struggling on, but those peace talks were beginning to develop about the Vietnam War, and they were taking place in Paris. And I was a student there. And I was asked in the final year to go and live with a, with a, a religious community that was running a parish, was, was in charge of a parish in a, a poor quarter, Belleville of, of Paris, where um, Edith Piaf came from. And I, I turned up in this, in this French parish. There was about 10 of them. It was a big community. And I, I was the uh, <laughs> struggling English student. And it was a wonderful experience, though, because half of the priests that lived there went out to work in a factory, and half of them were working on the parish. So that was interesting to start with. And, and I began to think, well, what's their thinking? Why do they actually go out to work in a factory? So I asked one of them one day, I expected him to give me an answer saying, well, well, I go out into the, into the factory because that's my way of getting to the workers who don't go to church, but I can take Christ, I can take the theology, I can take my, the gospel out to them, and that's why I, I make contact, is what I expected. But his answer shocked me at the time, and it was, it was totally different because he said, well, he says, I think I go out, Nicholas, he says, because I'm trying to declericalize myself and I found that quite a shocking statement at the time. I thought, well, what did he mean? Declericalize himself. He's a priest. I'm a priest. Um, we're, we're here to do the best we can. But it began to, the, the question sort of resonated with me and stayed with me. And, and I began to think more and more about it. And I began to think, well, yeah, I can see that, there, that there's a whole culture in following this way of life you've taken on board far more culturally than you perhaps realize it's not just the theology it's not just the philosophy it's, it's your whole way of thinking so i think that remained a constant sort of anxiety for me and then over the subsequent years i wasn't the only one feeling that we'd had the whole experience in the catholic church of what we call um, the vatican council which was an attempt to sort of say the Catholic Church has been a, a siege-like, in a fortress sort of a position. Why can't we open the doors? Why can't we open the windows? And there was, there was a whole movement to do that. It generated a lot of enthusiasm and uh, energy at the time. Uh, it was quite radical in this very static Catholic tradition. And I suppose it was at that time that, that some of us began to say, well, for goodness sake, it's not just whether you go out and work in a, in a factory, but are we in any way in contact with real people? Is, is the very monasticism, is the very sort of clerical status, is the, is the way that we've been privileged? We might be doing our best. We might be going out and trying to preach or we might be trying to encourage. But have we created a gap between us and the reality? Now, this is the 1970s. So, I mean, it, different world to where we are today. So that was when this friend of mine, Austin, said, let's, I'm going to ask, can we step outside our church monastic setup, passionist setup, and go and live in an inner city? Which would be the shorthand for saying that's where the problems are, or where, the, where the people are, you know, struggling. So it's a long story, because what he was asking was seen by the Passionist community as something, um, what on earth is he doing that for? We've got a perfectly good monastery here, you know, like, why is he wanting to go out? He can go out and talk to them if he wants, but come back in. So it took some negotiating to get to that point, and he didn't want to go on his own, and, I, and he said, would, would I go with him? So I said, yes, I would. 
I was back from Paris then, and that was when I went to, the, to live in Toxteth, and that's when I would say, great as my education system had been before then, and for which I'm very grateful, I really think I only began to learn properly from October 1971, where I was then, we, had, we didn't have a church, we didn't have anything of the normal trappings of church. We didn't quite know what we were going to do, other than that we wanted to go and live there. It was a radical repositioning of ourselves to rethink what being passionist means in that sort of context. That has then developed in different ways, and it's, it's sort of. But but those would be two two factors. One of them was that incident in Paris, which is okay. That was just momentary, but the other one was it was a commitment to sort of say, no, let's let's begin from another starting point. Mm-hmm. I've got a group I'm involved in, who inspired by. Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, have been exploring the idea that we need a rule. They're not mm-hmm. a Catholic group, although there'll mm-hmm. be some Catholics involved, it's a very mixed group. But we need a rule of life. We need mm-hmm. almost that Desert Fathers moment where mm-hmm. we flee from society to, to, to marginal space to, to form things out of the truth. The, the first place my mind went was to a speech by a Native American activist called Russell Means, where he says that European revolutionary ideologies, capitalism, Marxism, Christianity, he mentions those three, are revolutionary in their own minds. But if you're not European, it just amounts to the same thing. It's Mm -hmm. just another way of, it's just succession. It's Mm -hmm. just continuation of, of what was. And the only way to judge a European revolutionary ideology is by looking at its effects on non European peoples. That's a very big scale statement mm-hmm. of the of the problem, of the issue, of the question. But it's revealing to me the notion that, well, inside the city walls is the realm that you've made. And to the extent that you've made it, it's a fiction. Outside the city walls is the truth about what the city does and what it takes. So I think there is this sort of revelatory moment where we realise that, or that goes from our head to our heart, normally through some experience or being evangelised by the other, as your friend Martin Newell put it to me. But that's very difficult to do, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That stays in our heads much longer. Yeah. Well, I should say for me, maybe not so for yourself. That stayed in my head for a lot longer than it should have before it found its way into my experience. Our journey out of our world and into another world... Yeah really involves picking up our body and putting it in the space of another. Something about your your journey and your place and position seems to have... It sounds like you had to be very intentional about making that happen. It sounds like there was struggle involved in it. But it also sounds like where you were facilitated that journey. I'm I'm wondering if being a priest in 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 an order made it harder or easier for you to put your body in the space of the other and begin to be a recipient of the truth as you received it from them. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, I can only speak out of my own experience, so I don't know what it might have been like from another point of view, but certainly I found it was a tremendous support to belong to a religious order because I felt that however confused I was arriving at this new liminal space, I knew I was coming from a community that was supporting me. So that, that, was a, that was a strength. And it was a, a community that was supporting me without at the same time imposing, although there were attempts at times, 
to impose what happened in that new space. So there was, there was a creative tension about where we were coming from, but the very fact that there was that lifeline and that it wasn't a, a soul, it wasn't a journey just on our own. That did give confidence. The fact that there were two of us together, so we, we, were, we were both committed individually, but we, we were also committed to one another. So that was a tremendous strength. It wasn't always easy. Again, uh, Austin was a, a man, a very creative man, who I loved deeply. But he wasn't always easy, necessarily the easiest person to live with, as creative people aren't always. So it, it wasn't just as it, as it were. And we were both strong people in the sense of, like, we would argue our case. So it was, there was a deep commitment but it wasn't one that you could just take for granted. It had to be worked out, so the conversation would again come in. I think we were, we were very fortunate in terms of the particular community we, we, we eventually ended up in, namely Toxteth, because there's, a special, there's something special about that community. In many ways, it's, it's similar to other inner-city um, communities, but there's, there's a long history there. It's, one, it's the oldest black community in the UK, possibly similar to Cardiff, because of it being a port. So it wasn't, it was, it was a community that was settled, and yet the community itself, because it was mostly black, wasn't free in the way that anybody else in Liverpool was free. So there was, the community was having to cope with the tension of how it survived, how it lived, whatever. So you've got those different sort of points of contact which I found were the creative sort of lifelines along the way. So we, we received an awful lot from the local community when we were feeling low or where the hell is this going or what are we doing here? You know, there was, there was a reassurance. The tension would be there the whole time where challenging you, challenging me, to, to sort of say, well, is the way I'm speaking, is the way I'm acting really at the service of this, this group or these people or this individual? Or am I fulfilling my own need to be wanted or whatever? Mm. So, so that, that, that awareness that you were in a privileged but fragile position, which could easily be destroyed because a, a community like Liverpool 8, like Toxteth, is ultra-suspicious, rightly so, of do-gooders, as they might put it, or professionals coming in and sort of like parachuted in, sort of saying, oh, we'll help solve your problems. So in, in order to maintain an authentic relationship with them, you would really have to sort of be careful that you meant what you said in terms of, like, I want to work alongside you. There was an example of where, um, when the riots were on in, in uh, 1981, and there was all the tension with the local police and everything, different groups were formed to sort of help the community. And there was one occasion when Austin, who was, who was better known than me in that sense, he had his own particular gifts, and the local community said to Austin, listen, we've, we've arranged a meeting with the chief constable and, you know, council and whoever. We need somebody to chair it. Will you chair it? So Austin said, he said, yeah, sure, if you want me to do it, I will. But he says, before I go in, I says, let me know, you tell me what terms of reference are what you want to see happen. This is to the black community who were asking him to do it. There's an authenticity when the chips are down and when things are at an end. Don't come in, no matter how articulate or how much you want to, and so say you're going you're gonna to say what the way forward is. Mm. There's something about allowing oneself to be interrupted by the vision of another. The yeah. thing that's clear to another person 
but not clear to me. Yes. Or the thing that's screamingly loud to another person, but had been trivial to me. Yeah. You grab hold of your initial reaction of, yeah. of why is that such a big deal? Yeah. To, well, maybe I need to ask myself, why is it not a big deal? Yeah. I think a paradigm shift for me probably occurred years ago when I got very involved in the No More Page 3 campaign. So a campaign against the way women are represented in the Murdoch press. And I suppose, I mean, I was working for an evangelical organisation at the time. I always had leanings into sort of various activist activities. I guess I felt ethically, politically, prayerfully compelled to to be involved, uh, to join, to lend my voice. And it put me into a dialogical space with lots of people outside my evangelical world, with more, many more women than men, a space where women were the, the leading voices. And it turned the volume up on lots of awareness that I'd had in a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yes. to some degree, but that was, you know, it was there, but not that important. Yes, yeah things that were not important to the, yeah. uh, in my you know, normal yeah. circle, my normal community, things that were sort of outright challenging my, my worldviews on, on many kinds of things. And, it, uh, you know, those connections, yes. relationships, exposures to yeah. sufferings that I hadn't experienced yeah. lead from one thing to the next. And, it, and I guess there's a journey in that. Yes. A journey of... Awareness. Awareness. And relinquishment. Yeah, and you've got to be you've got to be sort of on the key vive, as it were. You, you you've got to be ready to sort of notice them because it's easily to, it's easy to miss them. You know, mm. a couple of quick examples of, of like where specific things for me stick in my mind. There was a group of kids I'd taken during the time when there were disturbances on in 1981. We'd take them to um, to Hollyhead actually and give them a, a break away from the problems. And we, we were having a debate in the morning with them and sort of, and there was one lad in particular would say, well, shall we do this or shall we do that? And his inevitable answer would always be, I'm not bothered. I kept offering him alternatives and he said, I'm not bothered. I said, listen, Daryl, I said, um, I said just, just let's have a straight conversation. Why do you always say I'm not bothered? And he says, well, if I tell you that I am bothered, you've got power to sort of decide yes or no. And I thought, whoo, he was about 13 at the time never crossed my mind, you know, in terms of his analysis of where that was. Another example was where, with myself and the other teacher that I worked with, we, we had this sort of group that we'd, we'd formed in the, in the school. And we, whenever there was a problem, we would always say, well, okay, there's a problem, how are we going to solve it together? And we'd, ha- we'd call a meeting, there'd be a conversation, and sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't, whatever. But there was this particular occasion, and I can't remember what the problem was, but there was, there was an intense debate going on with this group of eight, nine, ten teenagers. And the two of us were there, and uh, they, they weren't inhibited by us being there. But in the end, one of them said, listen, listen, will you two go and stand outside the classroom? Because we want to solve this one ourselves. We'll call you back in when we've sorted it. So we found ourselves in the paradigm. We were in a, in a comprehensive school, and uh, she was a senior teacher. I, I, was, I was in the school. And we found ourselves stood outside the classroom, hoping to God that the head teacher or any of the other staff weren't going to sort of walk past us. I say, why have they been sent out of the classroom? Meanwhile, it sounds as if all hell was breaking loose inside. But eventually, ten minutes, whatever, afterwards, they come. They can come back in now, and they'd solved it. Forget the details. The reason it comes to mind is because 
it is about power. It's about being aware of your power, about when to let go of that, or, or, when to, or when to enable others to take that power. And that's not an easy one, because it, it's got all sorts of political and personal and, and uh, institutional and professional relationships connected to it, in a sense, you know. But I, I think it's, it goes to the heart of what we've been talking about today in, in terms of uh, where is God in the middle of all this, and where, where is the sharing, and where is the... Somehow, mm. I'm wondering a bit there. <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful example. It's the paradox of being present in that in a marginalised space, but also standing aside mm. in it. Mm. You know, allowing it its voice mm. to surface and not your own. Mm. Common Era is produced by Passionists in England and Wales. To find out more about us, look us up at passionists.org.uk. Join us for the next episode where Nicholas and David will be talking about the pressures of past and future, the struggle to create authentic conversation on the verge of change.